This podcast contains language that is not appropriate for children, but you knew that already. Tonight's episode is brought to you by science, because science always wins. Yeah, Kevin Fulta said that, right? So he's the man. Well, I just said that too, though. Well, yeah, but it, I mean, it, it sounded good when you said it, but it sounded it better when he said doesn't it. Have, he doesn't have dibs on words. I know, but like it, it sounded, it sounded better when he said it, but you did a good, you did a good job. Cool too, and I'm yeah. just some random asshole on the internet. You did it right. <laughs> <laughs> well, hello, and thank you for listening to the Science Enthusiast Podcast. My name is Dan, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend, Natalie. Hello, Dan. There's a little bit of a uh, pause in there as you were you were reading the directions that say no. <laughs> I, was, say I was reading you, the directions, those are, yeah. Those were added back to the notes this week after last week, so I appreciate that. That, that, that was just to, to give you that special gift of, of that, of those parentheses in there, yeah. So, <laughs> so let's just jump right in here and tell us about our God of the Week. Okay, so we are traveling back to Egypt for this week's god, and this week's god is Anubis, the Egyptian god of the dead, turned god of funerals, including things like embalming and guarding tombs. So essentially, this god, Anubis, got, I would say, demoted from like full-on god of the dead to eh, god of funerals. So Anubis had the body of a dude and the head of a dog. So that's like... Some kind of weird genetic modification, maybe. Um, But whatever, because that's what he looked like. He was real. And he had some real... Yeah. Or, or, I mean, you know what else could have happened? What? I mean, I mean, you know. Yeah, I, I know. Yeah, that. So, he had really important jobs to do, like overseeing the entire underworld. So, he was like, he was a big deal in the world of death. Um... But here's the thing, then he was the ruler of the underworld until former god of the week, Osiris, and his golden dick took over. I don't know exactly how that takeover happened, but Anubis When you have a golden dick, you can pretty much do whatever you want. You know what? I think you're absolutely right. I mean, no, no one can argue with that. So Anubis even was probably just like, oh, whoa, I see that. You win. I will, I will oversee embalming and tombs and shit. But... So Anubis ends up still playing a role in like, you know, kind of the darkness of the underworld because he is the one who weighs the souls of the dead. So I guess it's like he has some scales and you put your soul on a, on the scale. Okay. Cause this is, this is what happens. The be, soul is, it's a, it it's be, a thing. Would, this, would they have solar mass? <laughs> oh, <laughs> I'm yeah. We need um, a little like, but um, yeah, uh, whatever. So, <laughs> The heavy souls got eaten. Okay, but I don't. I forgot by whom. I think it was by some kind of dog. Um, but then the light souls <laughs> they get to chill like with Osiris for eternity, because um, that's what happens when you die. Is like, and I was wondering, is this like, is it a thing in Christianity or something where there's Saint Peter at the gates of heaven and like. He says whether you can go in or go to hell. Is that a thing? Or am I just, or I, I might just, I, I might just be making stuff up at this point. I don't like, know. It's been so long since yeah, I actually you I know, don't, went to church and. Yeah. I don't, I don't even know, but, um, you know, so this, this God, again, he, do, he doesn't meet any crazy end himself. I mean, I, cause I guess he's already like dead. So you can't die if you're dead. 
um, Anubis, the Egyptian god of funerals. laboratory does really three major things now. The first job we do is how do, can we control the way plants grow and develop using light? And we always think about light as what you need for photosynthesis. But I like to use different parts of the spectrum to give the plant instructions. So when we give blue light and red light in different combinations and then UV or the infrared light, we can change the way it grows and the nutrients it accumulates and the flavors it has. So we're doing all kinds of cool stuff with artificial environments and growing food in cities and all that kind of stuff. We also do strawberry genomics, which means that we use um, the information in DNA or the expressed information in RNA to learn about the genes that control important traits like disease resistance or flavors. And we've made some really nice breakthroughs in flavors that allow us to understand how to breed strawberries um, just, you know, natural breeding, not GMO stuff, just to um, uh, improve varieties and have better flavored strawberries. Uh, the last project we do is something really cool and novel, and um, I won't tip the hat too much here, but we have, um, it looks like a potentially new way to come up with new growth regulators for plants, but maybe new antibiotics for people. And we have, uh, yeah, this is really, really cool. We, it's so simple and silly that no one's ever thought of it. But uh, just today, one of the undergraduates in my lab said he has a, a, a new molecule that stops MRSA. And uh, <laughs> that's pretty cool. <laughs> so that's what, that's what I do in my lab. Well, that is amazing. It's kind of a big deal. <laughs> yeah, <exactly>. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's got a long way to go, but the nice part yeah, is, is this this really cool discovery system we have is a unique pipeline that is so interesting and novel. And the nice part about it is that we eventually maybe could take the information we get to come up with next generation antibiotics. And uh, we're thinking that we can come up with everything from antibiotics to compounds that will make plants not flower or make plants flower or maybe new um, environmentally safe herbicides. Um, all kinds of cool stuff coming from this work. So your students must be like extremely excited to just be a part of this, right? And, uh, <laughs> yeah, they're all wonderful. We have so much fun with the undergraduates and uh, and graduate students. Um, the graduate students are, are outstanding, and I work with great postdocs and uh, visiting scientists from all over the world. And uh, it's such a wonderful culture that they have created um, just to explore and understand science and that undergrads come into this not really knowing much about science or just learning their way through it. 
they come in with enthusiasm and wanting the work and they dive in and they find something like this. That could be something revolutionary years from now. So very cool. That's awesome. Um, so you said, you know, kind of the, the desire to learn is important and obviously students. And I think, well, all of us just as people, especially as science and technology, like improve and new advances happen. Um, we had somebody tweet to me and Dan recently saying like, can somebody give sort of the explain it to me like I'm five definition of a GMO or, or what GMO means? Can you like, can you give kind of a layman's terms definition of what we're talking about with GMO and even just biotechnology in general? Yeah, I think what we're really talking about is this process that I like to call genetic engineering. Yeah. And I really prefer that term because, uh, as my one grad student says, would you rather drive over an engineered bridge or a modified bridge? <laughs> oh, I like that. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. And uh, so, But the point is simple, is that we always ha are doing genetic modification. Even with breeding, if we take two things that we mate together and their offspring come out different than the parents because of the genes – We've modified those genetics. So it's not really in a precise term. So if we're speaking with precision, we should use the word genetic engineering. And all that is is, is a method by which using the laboratory, we're able to move a gene from one organism to another or even within the same kind of species under different regulatory elements. I'll talk about that in a second. But the idea is being able to move a piece of DNA, like a word processor, being able to cut it out of one place, paste it in somewhere else and thereby give a new trait to the organism that you're engineering. Awesome. Thank you. And I, and I like the, the clarification of genetic engineering over yeah. GMO. That, I, th I think that is an important <laughs> distinction. So, yeah, yeah, we actually should play drink GMO. That when somebody <laughs> uses that term, you know, like Pee Wee's Playhouse, scream yeah. really loud. Like, you know, yeah. let's just make it go away. And, yeah. um, and so maybe that's a good way that we – Maybe we could all agree that every time someone says GMO, we just start screaming. <laughs> oh, I, I like that. I like that. That's <laughs> so. This is so we can all be on a quest to just like de-GMO the the planet. Just <laughs> yeah. We, well, well, we could strive for scientific pre, um, precision in our yeah. discussion, and I think that's what this needs to elevate the dialogue. Yeah. So, can I just jump in here? Yes. Um, Kevin, in your definition of, of a GMO there, now everybody starts screaming because I said it, right? We'll add that in post. Okay, all right. Um, it sounds like you're talking kind of specifically about um, what you might call transgenic work, um, specifically uh, taking a gene from one source and putting it towards another source. Um, I think a lot of what people are talking about when they use the term GMO um, falls under the umbrella of what we'd call cisgenic, where um, there's not necessarily a gene from outside the species coming in. Is that something that um, still fits under the umbrella definition of GMO as people are using it? Well, I think it's all, I think genetic engineering means anytime we're uh, moving a genetic element to confer a trait through the laboratory. So, a great example when you talk about cisgenic is like resistance to. Um, uh, to disease in apples. Oh, nice. They were able to take the, uh, a gene they found in something called Malus floribundus, a wild apple, and cross it with the domesticated apple. And years later, through many, many generations, were able to have an apple with that resistance. 
They were able to do it through the laboratory in five years by just cutting the gene out of the wild species and putting into the domesticated species. So this was really a cisgenic, intragenic um, activity. You still move the gene from apple to apple, but it had to go through the laboratory. So that's still genetic engineering. Great. And does the same um, definition apply for um, people talk about RNAi or RNA inhibiting stuff? Does that fall under the GMO umbrella? Yes, I think that also is genetic engineering because you're taking a sequence and placing it in a configuration so that it uh, it either forms a hairpin. So like think about RNA as a single-stranded molecule uh, that has information on it. And if you put that information forward and then backwards, it kind of folds back on itself to make a hairpin that's recognized by the cell that says, uh-oh, we got a problem, double-stranded RNA, maybe a virus, and starts a process that destroys all of the RNA from genes expressing that sequence. And um, it is a process where you're using sequences which match the native sequence, but they're moving from one organism to another and doing so through the laboratory intermediate. So that is engineering. Cool. All right. And, and so, like, moving forward, what are some of the most important, like, genetically engineered crop traits, do you think, um, that would will benefit agriculture? Like, you know, things like nutrient-enhanced golden rice or, you know, traits for drought resistance. Like, with our current climate in the, you know, world, what do you think are the most important developments? Wow. Yeah, the, to have to rank those is yeah. tough. Because or just all in one kind of... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, let me just put it in the four categories. And I think it really depends upon what your perspective is. I think there's tremendous opportunities in the developing world uh, to be able to grow, like you mentioned, the golden rice or the, um, uh, the beta carotene enriched banana, mm -hmm. beta carotene enriched cassava. There's so many world food staples that are starchy, um, that have very limited nutrition. And this is a way to enhance that nutrition. And I think that for um, at least for the health uh, and the 20,000 people that will die today, even if a handful of them could be saved with the technology, we should be doing it. Um, how do we mitigate climate extremes and being able to grow plants that can survive heat waves or drought or sea level rise, uh, saltwater encroachment, uh, cold snaps? Um, those are another thing. We can do that. It's been done. Um, that stuff is all sitting on shelves all over the, all over the world. Uh, ready to be deployed. Um, the other stuff would be just how do you have crops that serve the farmer better? Maybe uh, higher yields that we never bothered to engineer in because of the high cost of deregulation. But you can have a lot of our horticultural crops, like things like lettuce or tomatoes, that you could do some nice things with, but there's just not the will to do it. And I guess the last place that you would see a, a really nice advantage is in disease that uh, plant diseases like where I'm sitting right now, um, surrounded by um, thousands of acres of dying citrus trees, we could use this technology to save that and to save the avocado industry, to save many of the um, uh, plant industries and, and lumber industries that are being uh, threatened by uh, insects. So many good things we could do with the technology. And so what, like, what in your opinion is really holding that up? I mean, the fact that really, like you said, with oranges, something that's just right here, you know, right where you are, there could be such a problem with that. What, what's the resistance to moving forward with the technology? It's consumer acceptance. 
and that all of the uh, you know the citrus industry, at least in Florida, fuels a juice industry that's run by a couple of big companies like Coke and Pepsi. Mm-hmm. And when consumers say, um, you know, we don't uh, we don't want this or we won't have it, then they follow the consumer, yeah. and they would rather outsource non genetically engineered oranges from another country and and let things fall apart here uh, than to accept the technology here. Um, and that's that's a big part of it. Um, I think that, and I think that it's one of these things that, in ten years, twenty years, we're going to look back on this as really dark days when we could have done something and decided that we weren't going to do it. Yeah, and I've I've heard you say on, it, of course, I, I can't remember what show it was. Might have been SGU. Uh, you, you said it's it's we're going to hit a point where. We, you know, we, we don't have, you know, oranges or at least as many oranges anymore. And people like there's going to be no other option other than to genetically modify, genetically engineer. But sorry, I didn't mean to make a scream there. <laughs> genetically engineer um, the, these crops just because we otherwise wouldn't wouldn't have it. So like in I guess in your opinion, like how how far off? is something like that like are, are like how how close are we to you know like like you said with uh, the citrus greeting like how close are we to to that point where we're like it just in the marketplace we're going to start like if i go to buy um, you know a, a jug of orange juice like i'm i'm going to start seeing like like my price being affected do you think it's hard to say because there are other mechanisms that we can use to control um, the disease or the product output. And this is true with all aspects of farming. You know, genetic engineering isn't a solution to everything, that right. it kind of is one part of a multifaceted solution to many things. And so when we can't use genetic engineering on citrus, we can use more fertilizer and we can use insect controls and we can use um, uh, bactericides or other compounds to help the trees. And so we just have to switch to alternative mechanisms that are uh, more expensive and not as easy on the environment. So it really is a question of us deciding what is most important to us. If, if we really want an environmentally s- sustainable, farmer-friendly system, then why aren't we using that tool of genetic engineering? Um, we we often get que- we ask people for questions to submit, like when we have guests on the show. And um, one of uh, our questions came from it's Marco um, Arturo, who the, the young scientist. Um, I think probably future science communicator who runs a Facebook page of his own. Um, and his question kind of I think applies to what we're talking about now. Um, and he he wrote to me. It seems obvious. Um, hopefully, that the anti-GMO movement will eventually have an end in the future due to maybe familiarization with science and technology. Um, What do you think, if possible, is the one thing that would make them change their minds? Like, what what would change the minds of people who are in sort of the anti-GMO or or maybe even more on the fence type of camp? Yeah, that's where you have to focus, is the people on the fence. The people who have made up their mind to oppose the technology you're not going to change them. Um, they're out looking at chemtrails. Uh, you know, the, the <laughs> yeah. earth, you know, the earth is in the center of the universe and yeah. the earth is getting cooler. And, you know, there are people who have so many beliefs that they must find, um, information to reinforce and you'll never change them. Um, when you try to change them, it causes them to dig in harder and fight back and fight dirty. And so I like to try to talk to the people who are just people who are searching for answers 
You know, who are the parents who are, just want to feed their kids safe food? Mm-hmm. Who are the uh, people who worry about their health and who worry about their, you know, I know I want to live to 100, so I'm really careful about what I eat. And um, those people are the folks that, that we need to reach out to, and they're the ones that will be affected by the science but we have to deliver the science to them in a way that is uh, is acceptable, and it can't be beating them over the head with statistics. It has to be showing them the good things that science can do that really satisfy their concerns. And I think that's the way that we'll turn this around. And then that's where, you know, kind of the role of not just scientists, but science communicators comes in, right? And, um, right. and so, like, what, what does that term mean to you, kind of, or, or science communication? Well, for me, it's, it's, it really is more communication mm-hmm. and communication theory. How do we form a cogent argument? What, mechani- what are the mechanisms that are tried and true in the area of persuasion that date back to Aristotle about the way that we can, can provide a compelling argument to create the change we want? Um, this is something I studied for years. And that's when I, I came to the university. I loved writing grants because I used to write grants very differently than everybody else because I wrote them from the side of a communication theory rather than just here's some science. So, it's a, so science communication is about understanding the mechanism of how to communicate. Who's your audience? Um, what, what do they want? Is, is it correcting a deficit or is it, um, is it information that can help change their mind by appealing to their values? Uh, then the science part is just simply um, distilling the science into packets that are consumable. And too much we get buried as scientists. We communicate each, with each other in lofty and oftentimes uh, strange ways. But that's the way we like to talk to each other. You know, we like to try to uh, outdo each other and one-up each other with our data and our cleverness. But that doesn't work with the public. They don't care how clever and how cool you are and that your significance uh, levels are whatever level. Um, They just want to know if it's safe to feed their family. Kevin and I first met each other last fall um, at the Alliance for Science at Cornell. At that time, uh, Kevin was getting a hard time from U.S. Right to Know and these organizations that were uh, really trying to abuse the Freedom of Information Act to try to mine for uh, quotes out of context and things like that that they could use to to paint these public scientists as bad guys. At the time, myself and a few of the other people there were really upset about this. We were angry. Um, we found this really hypocritical, um, and we wanted to sort of fight back and go on the offensive and sort of try to do the same thing to the other side. Uh, I'll never forget this. This was sort of a light bulb moment for me in, you know, in in what I consider good practices in science communication. But um, Kevin was there with us. And Kevin, you told us specifically not to do that, not to go after them and, and try to hit them with the same kind of FOIA abuse. So more recently than that, something similar came up where um, all these pages on Facebook were encouraging their users to go report other pages that um, you know, that had a different ideological slant, try to get them removed and sort of silence them from the conversation. And again, you spoke up and told people on our side that they, you know, that we don't want to do that, that we want to take more of a high road approach. Um, that's something I really admire. I wonder if you could tell us more about why you don't advocate for people to use those kinds of dirty tactics against the opposition. Well, there's three reasons and three major reasons. One is that I have a hard time thinking about 
misinformed people as opposition. Um, there are people who need to understand the truth, and we're not going to help them understand by hurting them um, and by you know either ridicule or by invading their privacy. Um, you know, the second reason is I know how it feels to have your personal emails. Uh, I sent 680 more today to U.S. Right to Know. Um, have my personal emails talking about, you know, where I just have a conversation with friends on my university emails that, you know, we do this. I don't have time to separate. And someone will ask me how I'm feeling and how my medication is going or if I've had any other seizures or, you know, really personal information that now becomes, you know, public and like my email, my, you know, notes back and forth with friends about things that have nothing to do with anything that they want to know. It now becomes public and they put it, make it public. I know how that feels. And even if it's someone I disagree with, we should not do that to anybody. I would not want anyone to go through what I've gone through and, and what I've had to feel because the sense of invasion, the sense of like someone just breaking into your privacy, it's, that's just not right. And don't do that. And we need a code of ethics for science communicators that strictly states we're not going to use Freedom of Information Act in a fishing trip kind of way. If we have a specific question, by all means, you know, journalists should use it. It's great. It's a very useful tool. But we shouldn't use it in ways that are malicious or to scan through someone's piles, years of emails to fish out a nugget that can be misinterpreted on purpose to hurt them. Um, the last reason is, is because if we're going to make progress as communicators with the public and those people in the middle, why would we possibly want to turn them off with something as unsavory as uh, having coordinating mass attacks on a Facebook page or uh, taking these low-level tactics that these other folks use on us? Um, so just for all those reasons, we need to take the high road. We have evidence on our side. So we must always lead with our ethics, lead with our evidence, and lead by example and show people that we deserve their trust and that we deserve their respect because we're scientists with evidence. We don't need to go that way. Right. And yeah, I absolutely agree with that. And it's, it's, I, I think it's almost, you know, better than to think of them instead of opposition as victims because they're, they're, they're being targeted by these anti GMO, anti vaccine, anti, you know, pro chemtrail <laughs> groups that are that are trying to turn them trying to turn them against you know the science and against the evidence and so thinking of them as victims and in like you said earlier you know when you when you take that approach you are you're you're talking to the people that are in the middle the people that aren't even the people that aren't necessarily engaging whatever topic we're talking about that are just trying to make up their mind and not not confident enough to state what what they think out loud you know that person if they if they're seeing somebody acting basically acting like a dick online they're going to be less inclined to pay attention to that person and more inclined to go to the person that you know says the things that you know feel feel right or or sound good Right. And, and this is at the end of the day, this is a question of who do you trust and people who trust uh, the Jeffrey Smith's, the uh, <laughs> Stephanie Seneff's, the uh, Vandana Shiva's, it, they trust them because they're speaking to them to confirm a bias that they already have. Right. The information they're peddling is information that cons is consistent with their worldview. Let them throw stones. Um, to me, it's all about let's raise the dialogue and talk about the science because 
that that's what we that's what this is. This is about this is a discussion of what are the best things we can do and the best tools in our toolbox to help the the, the farmers and the environment and the people who are starving every day with nothing. How do we help them? That's what we want to be. And so, and you've said too that like some scientists have like come approached you and probably thanked you for being so outspoken about everything, but also that they've themselves maybe been a little bit afraid to speak up, right? Um, about oh, yeah. <laughs> right. So like so it that's nice, right? That somebody feels you know like proud of you, but you know sort of bad at the same time. But what advice do you have for people who are scientists that you know? How do how do we get them to speak out yeah. about all about these issues as advocates? Well, the the people who are targeting scientists with these kinds of smear campaigns know that they're doing it because they want to induce what sociologists call the spiral of silence. That once you can show that speaking up is is deleterious to you, which to me this could have been a career ender if I was a younger faculty member or if I wasn't so stubborn to stick it out. Um, this was something I, I thought about quitting many times, uh, just science in general. I couldn't take it anymore. Um, but uh, people came up to me at a re meeting recently, and everywhere I went, there was someone putting an arm around me or giving me a hug or whatever, just saying, thank you for doing this. And um, I'd say, that's great, but, you know, could you help me out a little? <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I appreciate the, uh, the pat on the back, but what I'd really like to do is see you in, involved in the discussion. And, it, and it's not – and every, I think what everybody thinks this is is some kind of sparring match where you have to get into this, uh, you know, uh, roll in the mud with the pigs. But you don't have to do that. You just have to go out and share science. And so what we need to do is get more people excited about how do we um, just uh, get fired up about talking about the newest innovation. What was the neat thing that you read in the journals? Distill that down for an audience. And what we do is we overwhelm the controversy with a tsunami of positive messages about science, and we earn their trust. That's how we do it. I like that. I like the tsunami. I like that. <laughs> that, I mean... I'm convinced. Well, already, but <laughs> no, that's, that's wonderful. Yeah, totally agree. It's a very inspiring approach and uh, hopefully a call to action that uh, a lot of these, the sort of amateur um, science communicators like myself will, will heed and, and work with. And I think, I think we're seeing that. And I think we're seeing a lot of interest from a lot of graduate students and postdocs that now see that if they can be a science, right now, everybody who applies for a job, I have stacks of applications for faculty positions or postdoc positions that are 100, 300 CVs thick. And every one of them is a gem. And so what do you do to stand out from the rest of that pack? Well, if you hosted a science cafe once a month or you did uh, science communication in local schools or to the old folks' home, that's, like, that's the thing that sets you apart. And I think a lot of students really see that. And I think they're excited to dive in because they see this as a way to not only get a leg up on the competition, but to share something they're really passionate about with a different audience. How cool is that? Yeah, and then the more voices um, there are, the better because you know, giving a positive message and a positive spin. Because obviously, we know that the the kind of the anti side of things they're they're loud and they they know how to you know make a scene about this stuff. But 
more people like you and yeah i agree i think it really is us making a scene but in a positive and really beautiful way the science that is out there right now and the tools we have blow your mind. I mean, they're just amazing. They're things that in my career 10 years ago, we could not do. Um, I mean, we could never even fathom what we could do today and for the cost that we can do it for. So cheap to do so much. And with these tools, we have to be showing people that look at how cool this is, that we can, uh, you know, that we can predict which plant out of this, this Petri dish of a thousand seedlings is the one that's going to change the industry. You know, this is the tree that will survive uh, the, the greening disease in citrus. You know, we can, we can do this with our modern tools. Um, we need to share that wonder with people and get them so psyched about, uh, about the wonderful things that we can do that they kind of turn off the really old, stale, boring uh, narratives that have been constructed by uh, tired-out activism for two decades now, or, well, four decades now. Yeah, and I I love I think it was in the um the intro to Fear Babe um that you wrote about how like our we have an abundant and safe food supply especially here like in this country right now and people are still afraid of food but like what would you t- what what is your message to kind of the the average person going to the grocery store in the United States today like who's looking at every label because they're so you know, focused on what is not or what is in their food? Yeah, that's a great question. I think so much of it has to do with uh, if you've ever seen scarcity or have, li- have visited a place where, you know, people are, are living on very little, you realize the abundance we have. Um, I, will, I have such a hard time with throwing away any kind of food. I clean a plate every time I get it. And I'm so grateful for every bit of food I ever can buy at the grocery store. Um, to me, it means a lot. And uh, I think that to remind people that, you know, we live in a wonderful place of abundance and the safest food supply in human history with more access to more varieties, to more seasonal vegetables than people ever knew. Uh, When I was a kid, I remember there were commercials, and I was a kid in the 70s, it wasn't that long ago, that we had commercials on TV for, you know, fresh summer fruits are here. And you didn't always have peaches and strawberries. You didn't always have blueberries. It was only during the times of year when they could be produced, shipped, and stored. And uh, so we do live in an unprecedented time, and we need to celebrate and be very grateful for what we have and for those who, uh, who are the farmers that grow it and for the harvesters who pick it because without so many people doing really difficult work, we wouldn't have any of it. I think like one of the things that... Um that sometimes seems to be forgotten is the whole like scientists are people thing in all of this. Um, and, uh, they are, so, you know, <laughs> they, right. Like, and I, it's like silly as that sounds. I mean, that's come up with, in all of my, um, in all of the interviews I've done for the science moms movie with Coven and, um, Allison and Layla, everybody. It's like that we bring, we talk about that. How it's not like people have, you know, some certain opinion of scientists, but, you know, you're really just people who, you know, do other things with your life. And, and Jason has some cool info about what you've done with your life. Uh Oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, going back to, uh, when we first met at Cornell, we had breakfast and, uh, you know, one of the things that we talked a lot about was all the people sort of from the old punk rock scene who, 
had gone on to have careers in science and that actually you kind of fell into that category. And in fact, that you used to be part of a band by the name of the Insane War Tomatoes. Is that correct? <laughs> That's correct. Uh, one of the uh, one of the greatest bands to uh, ever uh, <laughs> totally miss the mark. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, we 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 were we were really cool. We it was such a unique show in a time when uniqueness was what nobody wanted. Um, <laughs> we we had this gigantic stage show with pyrotechnics and costumes and uh, you know a toilet paper flying everywhere. It was like Blue Man Group. It was just like slop cannons and uh you know and and everything was so cool and then you know everybody in the audience at the end of the song you'd hear like one little clap and crickets and uh then they would raise their lighters and scream winger you know it was uh you know it was it was really bad but 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 we we, we were an okay band and it was a lot of fun and the relics from the time have uh aged well like all the you know records and uh, other uh, stuff from then. So it, w- it was pretty cool. We'll have videos out someday. Have you considered putting some of that showmanship into your uh, lectures on GMO and things like that now? <laughs> well, Insane War Tomato uh, fits in in a funny way. It does. It- <laughs> but the, the, the best the – best, <laughs> I was in so many bands over the years that the best name was probably Red Lobster Cult. <laughs> <laughs> And I played in bands that we dressed like clowns and we, you know, and, and nobody knew who we were, even our friends. And that was really cool. Um, but we, we did a lot of fun stuff over the years with music. See, I like, I always just, I like hearing the, the little bits of like, you know, what the other things people do and have done. And you, you don't just live in a lab. Well, there's, yeah, there's a, there's a, um, on, on my personal website on kevinfolta.com, there's a tab you can click on that's like, true stories or hard to believe or whatever. Yeah. And it's all these weird little fun facts about things that most people didn't know that like I was a waiter that uh, brought nachos to Donnie Osmond and uh, you know, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I've lived a pretty interesting, colorful, weird life in a lot of ways. And a lot of the funny little uh, experiences are pretty cool. You mentioned that uh, when we're talking about sort of the big picture of plant breeding, that GMO technology is sort of like a very small part of that and isn't, you know, the big answer to all the questions. Um, Could you tell us some of the limitations of GMO technology or maybe some of the problems that we face that GMO technology won't be particularly useful for addressing? Well, the big problem with this technology is that you're only able to move one or a small number of traits, right? Even in uh, the most elaborate stacked traits where you're putting many traits into one background, say in corn, it's not that extensive. And a plant makes its decisions on how to grow, how to survive stress, uh, yield, um, water usage. That's all predicated on the activities of tens of thousands of genes working in concert with each other. And so the real trick to any kind of genetic improvement is not moving around a gene from the lab. It's starting with excellent foundational materials that plant breeders create through traditional breeding. And so you have to have, uh, for any crop you're working on, make it as good as you can make it with uh, traditional breeding. And then if you have one deficit, like uh, sensitivity to disease or um, poor, uh, or, you know, or you need resistance to an herbicide or resistance to insects, then you add that one gene. 
add those two genes. Add that little sprinkle on top. Put the cherry on the Sunday. You know, and that's the way that we have to think about this. Plant genetic improvement is an important continuum based upon genetic improvement through traditional systems first, with a little bit little sprinkle of GM magic at the end. <laughs> sprinkle of GM magic. That's good. <laughs> I like the, yeah, I know. That's well, it's a different context because people um, people who aren't you know really well informed like most consumers think that you know everything in the store is already a, gem- a genetically modified crop they think that it's that that everything is genetically modified and so i think it's important to sort of contextualize and say you know we're using it for this and not for this and and put it in in terms that people can understand how um ubiquitous it is or or not ubiqui- ubiquitous as the case may be yeah, that's really true. It's just important for us to remind people that the real genetic improvement, and that's kind of the best phrase, is crop genetic improvement, because everything from traditional breeding through tricks like mutation breeding through uh, polyploidization, where we you know increase numbers of chromosomes, that's all old stuff, but it works. And when you're using genetic engineering, you're just adding one little extra trait that you can't do through traditional breeding. And that's where, with apples, was apple scab was a disease I was thinking of. Being able to get resistance from apple scab by moving a gene from the wild one to the domestic one through the lab, rather than doing it through breeding, which took uh, 55 years. You know, how do we make this process go fast? We don't have time. We need to acclimate the change in disease and need today. And this is why genetic engineering is such an important tool in the toolbox. Let me ask you about tomatoes other than insane war tomatoes. <laughs> um, tomatoes are, people use tomatoes as an example of um, a food that, you know, it's sort of lost flavor over the years. The, the tomatoes that we get at the grocery store are maybe a little bit bland or less flavorful than people remember or, or maybe less flavorful than the heirloom tomatoes that they get at the Saturday market or something like that. I've heard that this has to do with the fact that a lot of the tomato plants are being bred for traits that benefit farmers or that benefit, um, you know, the stores by having longer shelf lives and things like that. Is that the case? And is there, um, is there any way that we can try to change that in the future and get better tasting tomatoes? Well, yeah, the, the, I recently published something in horticultural research with, uh, Dr. Harry Klee and the whole first part of it was, it talks about Henry Ford that when he really started to ramp up production so that everybody could have a car, he said, you can have whatever you want as long as it's a Model T and you can have any color you want as long as it's black. (laughs) And what it basically meant was that when every time we try to increase productivity to make something that consumers can afford, we sometimes have to sacrifice our choices, and especially those that appeal to the senses. So plant breeding, especially around these rapid cycling annuals like things like tomatoes or strawberries you um the selection has been so intense for the traits that are important to farmers and for shippers and retailers so it has to last a long time look perfect or the consumer won't touch it and ripen when you want to ripen it and uh and have resistance to disease Uh, they don't worry as much about issues like flavor and aroma so now what's happening here, at least at University of Florida and other places, but we're really big on this, uh, through the Plant Innovation Center here, uh, Dr. Klee and others who are here 
are using humans as the first step to understand what are the compounds that humans like in a tomato. And uh, Dr. Charlie Sims, Linda Bartoshuk, Thomas Calhoun, a whole bunch of professors here work together to test um, hundreds of individuals against many different types of tomatoes. And what they found was the individual chemicals that are in a tomato that people like and that they don't like. And now it allowed us to have a target that we can now say, all right, we're going to breed all of these likable compounds and put them in the same genetic background. And maybe they never even existed there before. So it's really kind of interesting that we can predict exactly what the consumer wants, exactly what the consumer will like, and then can use genetics, not genetic engineering, but genetics, to pile all those genes in the one genetic background. And that's what's happening now with tremendous results. It sounds like maybe um, instead of consumers sitting around and waiting for, for somebody else to develop the perfect tomato for them, maybe there's something we can do on the consumer side to help out the process by maybe uh, going to the store and not um, pushing aside the, the fruits and vegetables that aren't 100% perfect looking, but, um, but just grabbing what's there. Yeah, the, the ugly fruit movement is one that's way overdue, and it's something that I talked about for forever. Um, I always went to the <laughs> I always went to the pro- produce section and bought all the orphans. <laughs> I, you, uh, gave the, you gave them a home. Yeah, I would, I'd find that one little sick banana that was teetering on the edge. It's all full of brown spots, and I knew it wouldn't be there in the morning, so I'd take it home and throw it in the blender. Um, but it, I kind of made meal decisions based upon the stuff that was going bad in the stores. And it goes back to the idea that um, that you know uh, you when you see what it takes to produce a tomato, and the number of people involved from breeding all the way through post harvest, the people who pick it uh, out in the hot sun, really doing really tough work, um, the huge amounts of fuel and labor that are involved, that I can buy this thing for fifty cents. Right. It amazes me. It's amazing to me, and it, it blows me away that we take this for granted. And so for me, I, I like to make sure that I have, <laughs> that I buy all the ones that are looking a little weird and uh, the ones that no one else will buy. And they taste the same, if not better. This question is from Joe in, in our group. He asked, uh, what do you think some of the benefits of CRISPR are and how ubiquitous will it be in the upcoming decades? It, it, this is the most revolutionary technology to hit um, major science in a long time. Um, this is transformative. And since the most exciting thing about CRISPR is, is that it's ushered in a new way of thinking about genetic improvement and new mechanisms already that improve on CRISPR. I mean, there's so much new stuff in the, in the pipeline, it's unbelievable what we'll be able to do in the next decade. Um, essentially, for the listeners, CRISPR is the, is the, uh, is the acronym for uh, clustered, repeated, whatever. I don't even remember. <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's some acronym. And the idea is, is that it, it's, think of it this way, it's a mechanism by which scientists can go into the genome of a plant and make a very precise change, usually a deletion, knocking out a couple of bases of DNA that can change the uh, output of a gene or change a trait, ultimately. And so, if, if for instance, if you have a, uh, a gene that makes a plant susceptible to a fungus, we can edit that gene, basically disrupt it with a couple little deletions, and now that plant doesn't get infection. The difference between this and 
regular genetic engineering is that there are processes that make this invisible, meaning you don't leave the hardware of genetic engineering laying around the cell, around the plant in the next generations. It makes the change and then goes away. And in, it's not that, that simple, but that's in short, the final product is indistinguishable from traditional breeding. That's so powerful because it allows us to make the changes without the objectionable hardware that people see as a GMO. Um, this way, it's, it's a change we want to make, and we make it, and it's indiscernible from traditional breeding. I think one of the exciting things about it is the potential to get around some of the regulatory hurdles that we were facing with other um, techniques of genetic modification. And uh, I think this is something that will help more players enter the market, whereas um, with quote-unquote GMOs, then it requires such a huge upfront investment and so many years of testing and so forth that it limits the amount of people who who can get in on, on the technology. Um, and I think CRISPR is going to make it possible for a lot more players. Do you think that's something that's going to happen? Um, absolutely. It's a little bit hard to say how this will shake out in terms of the licensing and the technology, how it's patented and licensed. Um, it could be that uh, there will be some bigger companies that are uh, actually uh, putting it, putting their arms around this technology, and I think that's already happening. But the good news is, is that, as I mentioned in the beginning, when you identify a new technology and use it, you tend to find new offshoots of that same technology that are better. And there's a good potential of some very interesting uh, ways to genetically improve plants and animals and uh, make medicines, microbes, whatever. There's great stuff coming using this kind of system. Um, I, I'll just throw in that, you know, I know a lot of the, the listeners of this show are totally loyal and don't listen to any other podcasts at all, understandably. Um, but, but if you're going to listen to two podcasts then you know, check out Kevin's Talking Biotech. But my point is, if you're going to listen to three podcasts, do check out the Radiolab episode about CRISPR because they do a really fantastic job of describing exactly what it is and how they discovered it and things like that. So, so Kevin, we definitely appreciate you taking the time tonight to join us. If our listeners want to hear, see, read more of you, where can they go to do that? Well, I think the the best uh, the, the best thing to do is to check out the podcast. Uh, it's talkingbiotechpodcast.com, and we do a weekly podcast that has to do with genetic improvement of plants, animals, microbes, medicine, and ways that we're using modern biotechnology to solve pressing problems. Uh, it's exciting because we don't talk about corn and soybeans and sugar beets you know we don't the, the stuff that everybody gets upset about we kind of <laughs> sit and dream about what could be um i'm on twitter at kevin fulta and if you uh, ever need to find me i'm at university of florida um, send me an email i respond to everything and spend way too much time doing it every single night um, the idea is is to try to share the science to get more people fired up about the science with the hope of uh, changing direction of and new acceptability of the best technologies that can solve problems, whether they're genetic engineering or not. Whatever it is, we have to be able to use it. Thank you, Kevin, for joining us. This has been an absolute pleasure. Oh, thank you very much. It was fun. All right. 
cool. Well, that was right. that was nice. Thank you. Yeah. Thank, thank, thank you. you. Yeah. Very fun. Yeah, I I think like um, Dan has this uh, Facebook group of what like ten thousand people in it. Um, they they're all very excited that we were interviewing you. So um, really, you're like you're a you're a science celebrity. Well, that, that's very sweet. The funny part is I'm like, <laughs> I'm, I'm like Joe Schmo who has the same, you know, goofy things going on every day that, you know, that go, I mean, it, running a department in a laboratory is a challenge and uh, yeah. doing it all with the science communication angle is, is overwhelming, but I wouldn't have it any other way. I'm, I just am an average guy who likes talking about science. <laughs> Why do we love the internet this week? Um, this week, instead of random meme like shit posting internet pages, decided to go a little bit more sincere. And when I wrote my note, I put podcasts and rad people. So the internet can often be like a totally shitty place where people say horrible things. But at the same time, I think the internet is also this kind of amazing place of connection. Like you can be literally separated by an ocean but connected by ideas with other people. I'm thinking like the science enthusiast group that Dan started, um, you know, people that we've kind of engaged with on Twitter, um, on Facebook, people who have other podcasts, like the internet is a place where like-minded people can come together, share ideas, share content. And that's one of the coolest things that I've experienced. I know Dan has too, about doing this particular podcast, like every week, we just get to talk to awesome and smart and funny people. And we, I think we feel extraordinarily lucky to be able to do that and deliver it to you guys who listen. Um, I want to single out a couple podcasts that I think you should check out if you haven't already. So the first is the last Tuesday project, which comes from a group of smart and witty UK skeptics. So, um, Sean, Alex, Hannah, Haley, David, you guys are doing a fantastic job um, tackling a different skeptical topic each month, um, putting episodes out on, you guessed it, like the last Tuesday of the month. Um, they did the Salem Witch Trials for their first episode, um, episode two, which just came out yesterday. Um, it's tackling the question of what it means to be an expert, you know, things like 10,000 hours, hashtag maths or math, if you live where we live. Um, the other podcast is Things That I Find Interesting, hosted by Buck Mulligan and featuring really, really cool conversations with interesting people like former guest of ours, Vance Crow. And um, the other thing is for that one, I just recorded with Buck. So you guys might want to maybe listen to me on an upcoming episode. Um, and then also just uh, I guess, shout out, do we still say that maybe to like Grant and Clay at the Prism podcast, um, Kevin Folta's Talking Biotech and um, Eli, Noah and Heath at Scathing Atheist and God Awful Movies who we just um, admire and listen to every week. So you guys, we love the internet because awesome people exist on it. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode. If you enjoyed listening, please consider leaving us a five-star rating on iTunes. 
If you have comments, suggestions, hate mail, love letters, you can reach us at podcast at ascienceenthusiast.com. You can also find our full podcast archive at ascienceenthusiast.com slash podcast and follow the podcast page on Facebook. Follow Natalie's new page on Facebook as Skeptical Parenting and myself as a science enthusiast. Also, if you enjoy the show, please consider checking out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash TSE podcast to get access to premium content as well as extended interviews and other nuggets of goodness. Uh, We understand that not everyone can financially contribute to the show, and that's totally okay. But if you can, just like James, Michael, Carlotta, another Michael, Alice, Joanna, another Michael, and Chris, we would be incredibly grateful. Natalie, hit us with a quote. One, remember to look up at the stars and not down at your feet. Two, never give up work. Work gives you meaning and purpose and life is empty without it. Three, if you're lucky enough to find love, remember that it's there and don't throw it away. And that's Stephen Hawking. That's nice, right? Absolutely. Thank you for joining me this week, Natalie. Oh, thank you for doing this with me, as always. It is my pleasure. Yeah, it's all right. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Did that sound convincing? uh, Moderately, but I'm used to it. So, you know, my expectations are so low at this point. Like, well, that's I mean, that's that's the goal. That's that's what I set out to to achieve is low. If if the expectations are low, that means you can only go up from there. So I mean, you you pretty much always deliver if the expectations are that low. So so like we're we're all right. Yeah. Oh, and who do we have next week? Should we tell everybody who we have next week? Yeah, absolutely. Next week, we're going to have Andrew Seidel from the, he's an attorney with the Freedom From Religion Foundation. So definitely looking forward to that. Yes. It's an awesome interview. We already recorded it, so. Oh, you're not, we, suppo- we know it's you're, you're supposed to pretend, we're supposed to pretend like it's happening like that day, now that we oh. recorded this over a week ago. Oh, Sorry. Way, to, way to ruin way to ruin the magic here for Natalie ruining ruining everything. That is the Natalie Newell story. So um. <laughs> And I, I see I see in our notes we have a link to <laughs> Oh no. <laughs> I don't know. This, we'll edit this out. Is I it's kind of inconsistent with the, the rest of our theme here. Uh, but I, I think Jason wrote in our notes uh, the, the song "I Live in an Asshole." <laughs> it I was think. a social commentary. It was about. It was. Yeah. It, it was. You know. The, it wasn't literal. Okay. Yeah, no. <laughs> no. I mean. Was, I mean. Yeah. Like what? Consenting adults. And all, I was going to ask what kind of research went into writing a song like that, thinking that it was literal. Well, based, it was, based on real life events, based on a true story. It was a metaphorical concept. Uh, it, no, it was the, the guy who wrote a lot of the lyrics. Was he? He's a really interesting guy, and he fabricates uh, even to this day like stuff for Disney and stuff. But he uh, he used to write rather clever lyrics that uh, maybe were slightly obtuse and uh, t- tended to have some sort of connection with poop. <laughs> So it sounds like something like my three-year-old would enjoy. <laughs> well, I, I'd be happy to send him an old vinyl record if you got a if you got a record. Oh, I, I have a re- I have a record player. We have okay. re- I have records. Yeah. <laughs> See, I don't, I don't even have a CD player in my house anymore. Yeah, I, I don't have a CD player, but I have a record player. You know, just because why not? <laughs> oh, I I love all of that. 
information that we gathered. Um, <laughs> While I'm in here, uh, could we get you to say, this is Kevin Folta, and you're listening to the Science Enthusiast podcast? Sure. Hi, everybody. This is Kevin Folta, and you're listening to the Science Enthusiast podcast. Perfect. Perfect. That's, a, that's the second gone. time we've remembered to ask people to do that. Uh, so, I could do it. Well, no, I can't do it. I was going to say I could do it in my <laughs> in the in the voice that got me in trouble. <laughs> oh yeah, is Vern around? Can we talk to Vern? Well, this is Vern Blazek of the Vern Blazek Science Power Hour. You're listening to the Science Enthusiast Podcast. <laughs> I grew up listening to Art Bell. I love that. I love that shit. I mean, I love the Vern Blazek shit. Well, I, I can do Vern Blazek a little bit better. It's it's when I when I have a cold, it works really well. 